Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Millsurf World podcast. Uh, we are here today with uh, Aaron and Jared, and we have a special guest, uh, Ian McCollum of Forgotten Weapons. Say hello, everybody. Hello. Hello. Hey. It's nice so, to be here. Uh, Thank you, guys. Yeah, yeah. Thanks so much for thanks so much for joining. I, I appreciate it. Um, yeah, we uh, we've I've I think I I think I messaged you maybe a year ago about coming on, and I know you're really busy, so I I, I appreciate you making the time for us. My pleasure. We had a an opportunity here where it all worked out. So nice, nice. Yeah. So uh, the first question that we typically ask our guests is, um, how did you get into military surplus firearms? I'm pretty sure I've heard you answer this at least a couple times in your Q and A's. But for the for the people that maybe haven't heard that, if you wouldn't mind, a uh, short version is basically my dad collected Arasakas when I was growing up, and uh, had a really cool display in particular of Type 99s organized chronologically on the wall on pegboard, and uh, it was really cool to see the the change in build quality and features over the course of six plus years. Um, I've always liked mechanical stuff, always liked history. And so firearms are kind of a pretty natural outgrowth of that. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a really perfect blend of yeah, machinery and history and everything. And it's pretty, pretty neat. Precisely. Uh, what was your first uh, Milserp, your first Milserp firearm? Oh, <laughs> uh, you really want to know? Yes. Yeah. Sporterized Swedish Mauser. Mm. Okay. Honestly, it was a really good gun. Like, it was a remarkably good gun. And I kept it for many, many years. I eventually sold it. But um, I don't remember what pat what model it was to begin with. But when I bought it, it had already been cut up. Someone cut the stock down um, a bit. I think they left the barrel. I think it was a carbine that they left the barrel length intact on. Yeah. They mounted a, they bent the bolt. They mounted a Weaver K4 on it. Actually a uh. de- pretty decent scope. They did a trigger job on it. And it had a really nice trigger. Um, and added, they actually went and spliced on a semi-pistol grip with some nice checkering on it. it oh. It was a sporterized Swedish Mauser, so it cost me something like $89 or <laughs> something yeah. stupid that a kid could afford at the time. So that was it. Uh, and I kept it for a long time. Never did much with it. But Danny's a big fan of the Swedes. Yeah, uh, I really like okay. really like Swedes. In particular, the carbines. It seems like the they sporterized... There's more sporterized Swedish carbines than I think even any one. Um, you see a lot of restores of Swedish carbines that are like put into M38 stocks, like the short rifle stocks and stuff like that. But yeah, I've seen a lot okay. of them. I restored one. The stocks are pretty, they're like 400 bucks, the uh, M94 stocks now. I bought a sporterized one thinking that I would, you know, that, that trap, thinking that oh, I'll just slap a new stock on it. And I have a nice one because it was a, it was a 1895 Oberndorf made one. And nice. uh, everyone makes that mistake at least once. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. For me, that was a, a Ross Mark III. Mm. And, uh, oh, it had a yeah. cut down stock. It was missing all the barrel bands, but the, the barrel was intact and the front sight was still there. And, I almost did that. I almost did the same thing with the Ross, a 1905 that was at a pawn shop for like $200. It's like, I'll just, yeah, get the parts and. <laughs> I almost yeah. did it with a. Oh, uh, I don't remember the year, but I almost did it with a a non-finished M91. It, it, they had cut the stock down and they had thrown away the handguard. And everybody that I talked to was like, you're never going to find a handguard. So I'm like, forget it. Then. Yeah. yeah. I have 
I've successfully unsporterized two guns. One of them was the Swedish carbine, and then the other one was a G43. Well, I guess I quasi did it because I put it in a reproduction stock, but yeah. Nice. What about this Johnson, Danny? Oh, uh, yeah. Well, Dan started that process. It's one of those, like, it's not a Bubba sporter. I forgot the story of the, the Johnsons that were like a company sporterized them and sold the, the Johnsons. Canfield Arms? Hmm? I can't remember. Canfield, something like that? Yeah. Didn't they rebarrel them too? Some other weird caliber? Yes. Well, yeah, I think they did do that with 7mm, but this one's still. (laughs) But this one. Yeah, the guy I bought it from, he put, uh, Dan Lopez, he put put an original USGI barrel on it and USGI rear side again. And it still has a commercial stock. And I lucked up at Tulsa this, this past spring and I found an original Johnson stock because like I saw that. I was like, oh, my God, just take, shut up and take my money. <laughs> I wondered why you were so excited about that. Now it's all coming together. Yeah. Reproduction ones sell for like a thousand bucks on eBay and they don't come up very often. So running across an original was like, yep, yep. Shut up and take my money here. Whatever it is, I don't care. But yeah, so I have to. I have to finish that sometime because the whole, you know, recoil uh, spring like that, our action spring kind of being in the stock is a whole sort of pain for switching over the stock. It's not very, it's not a simple just switch, unfortunately, but yeah, it's my next project. Trap. Yep. Um, so uh, next question, uh, what got you into French mill serps? Basically, I needed to specialize in something. I was starting to accumulate just a hoarding of guns, basically. And uh, picking up every kind of different thing that seemed vaguely interesting, and and it really ne- I really needed to focus on something. And I had a couple pretty nice Bertiers already. And what appealed to me about the French guns specifically is that nobody else used them. So they're like the exact opposite of the whole export Mauser scene, where you got eighty-seven different countries that all essentially use the exact same gun. Well, French like to do all of their own development in their own state-run arsenals. They don't really buy stuff from the outside. They may steal elements of designs, but then they work it over into something uniquely French. And at the same time, they also then don't, they're all state-run arsenals. They don't really have a motive to go selling stuff to other countries. So there are a few small export contracts of a couple of the French guns. But in general, if the French army used it, nobody else did. And I like things that are odd and different. And so the, the French specifically was a really good fit. I know exactly what you're talking about. Uh, It also didn't hurt that at the time, nobody gave a crap about French guns. It was just the her, her, her only dropped once kind of thing. Oh, yeah. And so the prices were pretty low. I mean, not as low as Italian, but a heck of a lot cheaper than if you decide you want to collect British or German or American. Yeah. Yeah. That appears to have ended, by the way. I was just, just before we started this podcast, I pulled up a a gunbroker watch list item I had. Uh, there was an 1892 Bertier that was Polish marked. So, you know, after World War I, the Poles got uh, some labels and some Bertiers. It sold for $3,000. Ooh. It's evening. Like, wow. What the heck? The Polish collectors one, are goofy, though, with that stuff sometimes. Oh, yeah. I mean, Polish stuff does kind of. Six hours ago, when I put a bid on it, I was winning it for 550 <laughs> Oh, yeah. Gun broker, it's all in the last 30 minutes. Yeah. But by the, when I went and looked at it, it was the sale was over. 
and it wasn't three. It was like twenty nine fifty or twenty nine sixty or something. That's but, yeah, might as well be three. Yeah. Whatever. That's got to be. That's got to be two guys that needed it to complete a collection. Oh yeah, it'd be interesting to look at the bid history on that and see. Yeah, it would be. I didn't have a chance to to really dig into it. Uh, it is the infamous gray blanket. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah never mind. That's that's but even that works. so. Like I I've, I've successfully bought a couple of guns from him. So have I. I got mm-hmm. a really nice Argentine uh carbine, 1891 carbine for like 400 bucks. It's beautiful. You know, from him and everyone cuz it's the only gun I've ever bought off of him and it's funny because everyone always, "Oh, his stuff's way overpriced." I'm like, well, "I got it's a not overpriced one. if it's an auction." Well, yeah, I mean, it you is. know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, yeah. I'm, I'm and I understand what you're saying, but there are still times when you're like, why on earth did two people both think that that gun was worth $3,000? Oh, you're right there. I can't figure also, out why. Yeah. If that person's listening to this podcast and wants a Polish uh, 0715 Bertier, uh, talk to me because <laughs> I could use $3,000. <laughs> <laughs> we'll make you a hell of a deal on a rifle, sir. Yeah. <laughs> I've noticed there's like a handful of sellers on Gunbroker that their stuff kind of demands like it's they get like the premium pricing, like they get top dollar for all their stuff. Um, I guess maybe they've I've thought about that myself. And I think at least part of what's going on is there are some sellers who just have a a large volume of good, interesting, in this case, Milserp guns. And I think there are a fair number of people who just subscribe gunbroker notifications to see whatever those sellers are posting mm-hmm. but they're not out there they're not out there every day looking for you know searching for polish bertier and they haven't figured out that you can do saved searches on gunbroker so it'll automatically look for stuff for you and so i think they're it's kind of like they're essentially gunbroker channels that have gonna, enough good stuff that people will just watch them and when something comes up oh yeah like, oh, there's my thing yeah yeah that's a good point yeah, so the people that constantly refresh Simpson every day. Yeah, um, gray, gray blanket or uh, easel, easel. I'm not sure how how you say yeah. his last name. Um, yeah. I've, I met him a couple times at at Tulsa. I bought a um, I bought a uh, Ottoman 1893 off of him. A Belgian captured and issued Ottoman 1893 off of him for like a really good price at Tulsa. Yeah. Um, so like, nice. I've met him a couple times myself. He's a nice guy. Yeah, yeah, I, he really I, is. He, uh, yeah, he like helped me out with um, like the payment issue because I was trying to figure out like how what to do with my cash because I was trying to keep it whatever. And he's yeah, he was a super nice guy. I met him at uh, a military antique show in Pittsburgh. Oh, and yeah, he was he was really cool because he had all kind of goofy stuff. It was neat. You know, Patrick knows him. You know, Ian Patrick. Yeah, he knows he knows him real well because mm. we've talked about him before and I don't know, Patrick got real defensive about it but um, it's not him it's uh, and we weren't making else. fun of him either we were just like oh that's gray blanket and yeah. they're like oh no it's not gray blanket and I'm like come on man it's just a nickname yeah I've seen it it's gray yeah everyone needs everyone gets a nickname if you have that much traffic it's it's every single picture is a gray blanket come on yeah. I think yeah, that probably originated on gun boards because like people were getting in trouble for allegedly, you know, for like referencing an ongoing sale, and so I suspect that people just stopped using the guy's name in order uh. to sort of encode and be able to talk about it without the moderators whacking all the threads. Hmm. Huh. 
I'm just guessing, but that's there's always a way. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. But but getting back into your your response about French stuff, that's how I felt about M95s. I think that's totally valid. Um, I've said in a Q and A or two myself that M95s are a prime choice for an inexpensive, interesting collection these days. I just hit my tenth. Nice. Yeah. I love I list I I I'm like you said just exactly what you said about your your French you decided to focus in you wanted to you know learn something interesting that was just off shooting and then and that's exactly what I did too and then Danny can make fun of me all the time <laughs> so it was a couple of years after I started focusing on French that it occurred to me like you know there really is nothing written about these things in English basically there's a book on pistols two books on pistols um and there were the collector grade books so there's one collector grade book on the semi-auto rifles but there was nothing out there that really talked about labels bertiers moss 36s um and it occurred to me like i have a bunch of these i I bet i could do a pretty good job on a book about these and uh then it really got nuts (laughs) yeah I can imagine. It's it's very similar to the Mon Liquor stuff. Well, Mon Leisure. Sorry, I'm very tired right now. Um, oh, yeah. The the M95 stuff is all in German or Bulgarian. Yeah, yeah so, there's not too many good yeah sources of Mon Liquor stuff on, and, yeah, in English. I know Thias has talked about this before, too. Translating technical stuff, because a lot of people that, that write these books in other languages or even in English... They don't know how to write a book, and they're just writing technical stuff. And translating that from German to English is apparently extremely difficult. Yeah, yeah definitely. Austrian German is supposed to be a little different than German German. Yeah. Well, then I guess you would also have Hungarian, too. Oh, man. Well, so many different <laughs> aspects. Yep. Oh, I'll let... Um, I'll let... Uh, Jared asked number four because this was uh, he actually came up with this question. Yeah. Um, do you have uh, like any grail guns you're searching for that you don't own yet? <laughs> no, I reject the premise of the question. <laughs> <laughs> so my, my objection to the grail gun question is that a grail gun implies that once you find it, you're done. The ah, only hmm. thing that's preventing my collection from being perfect is the one missing Holy Grail gun. Uh, there are certainly some guns I don't have that I'd really like to have. Um, top of the list for a while has been a, a Mat 49, which are really rare and obviously really expensive. Uh, I've got a nice batch of French machine guns, and I would love to have a Mat 49. But it's not like once I get a Mat 49, I'm going to stop looking to expand the collection. There's always some fractally more slightly varied version of something that you'll need once you've got all the other stuff okay. uh, for a long time actually an frf2 was was really high on the list of i'd love to have this but i don't think i'll ever be able to oh, and then Navy Arms yeah. imported like a hundred of them and so now i've got one yeah yeah i saw those um from from navy arms at uh, at tulsa they had a whole lineup of them um on their table yeah. they're quite impressive and, and looking at them in real life you know versus just like on a on a line that's fantastic i was so so happy to get one of those. I never thought that they'd ever show up. Um, yeah. For those people who have them, uh, Scrome is actually making a run of J8 scopes with the original military reticles to sell to the commercial market. 
specifically because enough of those guns went out as surplus that they think there's there are enough there's enough market for them to make a run of scopes. Oh, nice. So, but Scrome, so it's gonna be like stupidly expensive. But if you've got one, sometime late this year, I think Scrome is gonna have J8s available. That's cool. Mm. Yeah. So this uh, next question I ask you while I puff on a pipe here. Um, as a pipe smoker, do you prefer English or aromatic tobacco? Uh, bubbles, actually. I don't smoke a pipe. Bubbles? <laughs> That's my brand. <laughs> I have a pipe, and I occasionally use it as a an accent prop. I don't actually smoke a pipe. Mm, okay. Sorry. Danny doesn't either. He's just pretending right now. <laughs> yeah. You're right. Yeah. Yep. I have not sat on his porch and watched him do it. It's um, I started I started as a uh, well, I used to smoke cigarettes when I was like 16. It was a, I, I quit like really early on and then I smoked cigars and stuff like that. And then I uh, I started reenacting like World War Two reenacting and a lot of Europeans smoked pipes. So I just was like, hey, uh, that looks like something I, I should try. And I started smoking pipes like at reenactments. And then I just kind of kept doing it after the reenactment. And uh, now it's just like a just like a thing that I do that my wife has to has to put up with. All right. I just thought it looked cool with my smoking jacket. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it does for sure. <laughs> I think you just broke his heart. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I smoke mostly aromatics, uh, if anyone's curious. Um, this one, I was, <laughs> I was, I was, okay, this is kind of a random one. I was eating pizza when I was trying to think of questions. So I just was curious, what's your favorite pizza topping? It can't, it can't be pineapple. <laughs> Don't break my heart again. <laughs> uh, the classic pepperoni. Ah, uh, okay. connoisseur. connoisseur. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just a plain cheese. I just get the plain <laughs> Yeah, I know. Yeah. I, also get van- I also get vanilla ice cream. I'm I know. sorry. Are you five years old? I know. Yeah. Are you my six-year-old daughter that's upstairs right now? Are you serious it's right now? Chuck E. Cheese brand. All right. It's if it's if it's a good if it's a good pizza place, they have like good New York style pizza. It doesn't really need that much. Just good cheese and know. pepperoni. I agree with Ian. Like it's a basic pizza. Like perfect as is. Okay. Well, Word. moving on. Uh, <laughs> Favorite non-alcoholic beverage? Because I think I think we probably know have a good idea at least of what's your favorite alcoholic beverage. I, I figured that's why you phrased that one that way. Um, I don't know that I really have a particular favorite. There's nothing I go out of my way to find in non-alcoholic beverages. My secret shame, though, is when I'm doing a a long filming trip. You know, if I'm at, at a place like Morphe's filming five or six videos a day for a week. The thing that keeps me going is, of all things, Diet Mountain Dew. Mm. One of them today. They're good. Don't drink it at home. But when I'm on the road working, it's Diet Mountain Dew. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was actually going to phrase it like, if you're on a road trip and you stop by 7-Eleven, what do you grab? It's usually like a good... We'll tell you, though, in Europe, there is no Mountain Dew to be found, diet or otherwise. Really? Oh, man. Oh. There's no Diet Coke. It's Coke Light or Coke Zero. Coke Light? Coke huh. light? It's Diet Coke, but they call it Coke light. Mm. Still sweetened with aspartame, or is it something different over there, I wonder? I think it's the exact same as Diet Coke. Because the, the style and the coloring of the cans and all is exactly the same. Mm. I think it's just the, the word diet doesn't go over well with a European audience. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess that's a, kind of an American, American thing. Which, hey, this leads into our next question here. Of uh, So... 
this is coming from a person like of me that I've I've struggled with my weight kind of on and off over the last five years or so. Something about being married, I think, kind of kind of does it. Um, do you have a fitness routine or a diet that is keeping you lean and fit? Because I've noticed pretty much. Yeah, it do. Um, in my case, it actually helps being married. My wife is um, is definitely interested in health and staying healthy, uh, and she does all the cooking. So. Um, I eat a lot of vegetables. I don't eat a lot of processed or junk food. Um, I, we, we generally run three days a week. Um, normally, it's a three and a half K run twice a week and then a five K run once a week in the morning. And then wow. um, we have a little bit of a home gym set up. So just some pretty basic stuff like a pull up bar and a couple of free weights. But I try to do that uh, like a half hour routine three or four days a week. So if that's I'm not impressive. running, I'm doing strength training in the morning. That's impressive. I've ran like two 5Ks in my life. I can't imagine doing one like that every day, once a week. Wow. <laughs> once you get used to them, it's, it's not that big a deal. Um, I like them for the cardio. I like the strength training for just have, building some strength. Uh, in terms of staying lean and, and watching weight, that's like 95% what you eat and not, not exercise or anything like that. At least in my experience. Trying to do the math of how far three three kilometers is. Uh three K is like two miles, mile Thank and a half. Thank you. I I'm I'm an ignorant hillbilly. I don't know how to measure. Yeah. One uh, mile one uh, one mile is one point six kilometers. Okay. Thank you. See? I'm sure I'm not the only one who tried to figure that out. Or I won't be the only one. Yeah. <laughs> I've had enough complaints from people in video comments that I don't use metric. Um, you know, stop using your stupid American numbers. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've tried to actually get used to in my head doing the conversions for uh, pounds to kilos and uh, meters to to feet. So I'm yeah. an engin- I'm an engineer, so all the stuff that's wrote in engineering is um, in metric, and I have to be able to convert like pressures to American Ooh. pressures so I can understand yeah. how it actually works, like. <laughs> How many bar are in a PSI? Like, I don't know. You know, you have to like figure it all out. It's kind of goofy. So I get that. I will say the one place where I will absolutely stand my ground, no budging, the American system is unequivocally superior is bullet weight because weighing bullets in grams is crap. Weighing mm. them in grains is God's far fired. Yeah. yeah. Grains are exactly the right weight to give you just the, the right range of differentiation on bullet weights. Like 115, 124, uh, nine millimeter stuff, and what 147. You you put those in grams, and you're like 3.4, 3.5, and Yeah, it's, it's it's not precise enough. Yeah, and I think I agree with you there. Grams for bullets, so huh. grains are just perfect. Even more so for powder, by the way. That's what I was thinking for powder. Yeah, because like a you know a nine mil loads like four ish grains of powder, like. Depending the difference on what you between use. four, five, six, and seven grains of powder is is nothing in if you only have one significant figure of of grams. Yeah, two sig figs. That's interesting. Nice. So, next question is: uh, What's your favorite type of video to do? It is interesting to hear you like put out the idea that the videos are differentiated into types because I honestly don't normally think of it quite that way. Um, Say I have what I would call desktop videos, where I'm you know looking at a gun static on a table, as opposed to shooting range videos. Um, 
tabletop stuff is definitely easier because the audio setup is pretty straightforward usually. Um, yeah. Filming at the range can be really tricky uh, with lighting angles. And, yeah, and the wind. And, um, yeah. and oh, God, and wind. Uh, audio editing is the bane of my video existence. I, yeah. I hate it, and I hate it enough that I'm not willing to like learn how to do it properly. So I apologize to everybody, but the audio quality is never going to get substantially better. I don't know if uh, you've tried it, but I've had pretty good luck with a uh, Rode VideoMic Pro with a dead cat on it for outside, even in the wind. I've tried various things. Some of it works, some of it doesn't. Some of it works until I get it into a, you know, until we hit the range one day and it's just too windy. And, uh, you know, but I'm on the road and I have a flight home the next day. And so it's either do it here or don't do it at all. Yep. So there's a lot of that. Um, but let's see. Other, I do, I don't know. I don't really have a, a particular type that's my favorite to do. I guess. The thing that I really like, uh, what drew me to doing this in the first place and what continues to always reinvigorate my, my love of doing it, is basically getting to take apart some funky new thing that I've never seen before. I, I love digging into a new interesting gun that I've never seen before. Yeah. Yeah, that's probably what you're most known for, is taking, it, taking odd guns apart. Well... Good. I like doing that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Even then, it's easy when you can watch something that's odd to like me. Like the first time I took a G41 apart, I'm like, uh, I'm like, oh, he in his video. And you're like, do do do. I'm like, oh, sweet. <laughs> yeah, you do make it look easy. Yeah, yeah. You're, like, you're like, oh, I can do that. You know, like it kind of like it gives Excellent. me a little bit of hope of trying. The impressive part <laughs> to me is that you re- like know the names to all the little parts as you're doing it. Typically, like that's the oh, like oh, that's what that's called. I've always just called that the thingamabob and the doohickey. And I'm usually right. Not always, but usually. <laughs> yeah. Forever this will be known as that goofy lever thing. <laughs> and that's how it works. Yeah. Every once in a while, I'll lose. I just, my head, I don't have the name of a, a particular thing. And then a thousand people in the comments will be like, oh, oh yeah. that's a sprocket. <laughs> call it. That was one that yep. came up, a call it. Oh. Uh, and yeah. Like five minutes after the video published, the first one hit. And I'm like, ah, crap, that's exactly, mm-hmm. that was a call. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, the commenters, they'll let you know. They'll let you know everything you did wrong. Oh, yes, they will. <laughs> it can be interesting to see, like, what's the thing on this video? Because often there will be one, it's not the majority of comments, but there will be one repeated, unusual, specific comment on a particular Oh, thing. yeah. So like, kind of the echo comments, through. Like, the thing on this video is that I forgot what a collet was called. <laughs> yeah. And I'm not then, saying that's a bad thing. Sometimes it's, it can be really interesting to see what, what thing people pick out of a video. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Also from like a creator, it's like a, it's, if they weren't going to comment and that's got them to comment, then it's a good thing. You know, I, it's crossed my mind sometimes to like deliberately mispronounce something or, or misidentify some mechanical thing. Just specifically to encourage comments, because I know they'll happen. We don't do mm. that by constantly ragging on people that like Lee and Fields so that they comment <laughs> angry comments on our videos. <laughs> you know how you find out information on the internet best, right? Oh, um, yep. Don't ask. You just go out there and boldly pro- proclaim something that's wrong. Yep. If you ask, no one will bother answering you. But if you tell someone that you, the wrong answer, a thousand exactly. people will correct you. Exactly. <laughs> There's got to be a name for that, like a psychological thing. Yeah. It's like pulling the audience almost. 
Yeah. This is someone's law for that, I'm sure, but I don't know. Uh, so the next question, there's a lot of different ways I was trying to phrase this. It's almost like if you went back in a time machine or like if you had to do it again, would you still, would you, would you do the daily video upload schedule again? Yes, absolutely. Um, that I think was a significant factor in being able to build and grow the channel. Yeah. It was a heck of a lot of work. Um, still is a heck of a lot of work, but yeah, I would absolutely do it again. That's what Danny and I were talking about when we were yeah. talking about this question. It was like, dude, I could only imagine the like, amount of work, the amount of effort and work. And then, but I was like, if he didn't do it that way, would he be as well known as he is now? You know what I mean? Almost certainly not. Yeah. Um, and I think there's an algorithmic element to it. Like YouTube saw that level of content and it boosted the channel to people. I can't swear to that because, in fact, there aren't a lot of other channels that do that level of 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 production schedule. Um, and there are certainly plenty of other channels that are as big as mine or bigger. But I feel like that volume really helped the channel grow. I think you're right because I, so I remember being like subscribing to you. You had like 100,000 subscribers or, or maybe a little more because when I got up in the morning, I worked night shift. So when I got up in the morning, I could like, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to watch Forgotten Weapons today. And then like you could, you could actually see like an increase because I'm like, I mean, I wonder how many got, like subscribers this guy has. And like a month later, I'm like, wow, he's got another 50,000 subscribers. Like it, it was around that time. It kind of went, Roop, you know. Yeah. yeah it was and it was that. recommended to me. So Okay. Well, thank you, YouTube. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it worked. I mean, a little bit. I'll yeah. Screw you, YouTube. But yeah. You know. I've always thought of it a bit as like um, each video you do kind of casts out a net for people that would be searching for that sort of like specific word. So kind of like the more, or, you know, string of words or whatever, like maybe that's in your tags. And then, you know, the more you, you know, more videos you put out is the more nets you're casting out and then more odds that people are going to kind of be drawn into you. So my, my hats off to you for, for doing that because that is just a tremendous, I don't think, I think as consumers, people could just, they just see, Oh, new video. Cool. I'm going to watch it. And then maybe nitpick the one or two you know words you said wrong or whatever. But like, geez, a video a day. <laughs> I get a kick out of it sometimes when I will see a comment that is something to the effect of like, "Oh, you're putting out a lot of content this week." <laughs> <laughs> this week, yeah, this like, week, yeah. No different than every other week, dude. Yeah, that's good. You didn't notice it. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, speaking of a busy schedule, what is one? Gun project, if you could name like your top one that you wish you could do, but you don't have enough time. Oh, um, the project, the thing that always comes up is if I do a trip to anywhere in particular, I will come back with like contacts and leads to spend three times as long in that place. Um, I was, I actually, I went to Austria uh, last month and had a great trip, met, went to uh, a couple of museums, a couple of private collectors. Again, I came back with, like, I could go spend a month in Austria right now uh, filming every day. The problem is I can't. And I'm stuck. I'm in the dilemma. It's a good dilemma to have. But I'm in the dilemma of do I go back to filming with some of the other collections that I've already worked with where I have a good relationship and I know what guns they have and, and there's lots of good material still to work with? Or do I try to go take advantage of all of these new contacts? And, and there's just there are times when I feel like... a the proverbial bear in a salmon stream. And there's just stuff whooshing by, and all I can do is try to grab as much of it as I can manage 
in the current. Yeah. That is a great problem to have. Yeah. It, it is. Yeah. What I'd really like is to have like five extra days every week. <laughs> Wait, YouTube doesn't do that after you get over a million subscribers? They don't give you another, no, maybe it's a, another day maybe of the it's week? 10? Oh, yeah. Know. Yeah. I think you're right. I think it's at 10. They give you an extra day of the week. All right. Well, crap. I've got one <laughs> to do then. <laughs> um, so I guess. Danny? We don't even have a million. <laughs> no, I'm right there, man. I'm right, on, I'm right on the cusp. What are you talking yeah. about? Of yeah, 10,000? No, tw- 25. 25K. All right, all right. All right. Yeah. Uh, so speaking of trips, uh, what is your favorite gun-related trip? Honestly, I don't know that I could come up with one. Like, There are a lot of very good ones. Almost all of them actually are very good. Uh, I have a hard time coming up with a trip that went badly. In fact, I've never had a trip that just exploded. Um, and man, especially early on, I did some trips on pretty sketchy foundations. Uh, <laughs> in fact, there was a time I went to Belgium probably five or six years ago now. And I was, my host was this, uh, as a, an army officer that I met on in a collector group on Facebook. I'd never actually met him in person, just talked on Facebook and he seemed like a legit guy. And I get to the customs agent crossing, you know, after at the airport, having landed in Belgium. And she's like, how long are you in, in Belgium? And I told her, and it's like, and what's, what was it? She started asking more questions. Like, what's the purpose of your trip? I'm like, oh, tourism. And she's like, and uh, where are you staying? I went, uh, oof, I'm staying with Jens. And she's like, Jens. And what's his last name? And I'm like, I don't know. Like, I'd have to pull up my phone to check. I don't remember. She's like, and where is he? I'm like, I don't know. And how did you meet him on <laughs> Facebook? <laughs> and she finally like, gave me a, a pretty intense glare. As she's stamping my passport, she goes, you know, I think if I was trying to come into the United States with this kind of story, they wouldn't let me in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's probably true. I'm like, yes, ma'am. I'm sorry, ma'am. I'll do better next time. So I do make a point to have some of that information at hand for customs now yeah. ever since. But yeah, but that's you know, how you learn. Like that trip, in theory, a trip like that, I you know I walk out of uh, the airport arrivals terminal to find the guy who's going to pick me up, and oof, no one's there. But that's never actually happened. So either I'm lucky or I have good taste in picking people to travel with. Yeah, yeah, Maybe a little bit of both. I think if I could go somewhere, I'd like to go visit the battlefields in France and Belgium for World War One. They are fascinating. Um, yeah. I have done a couple of World War One battlefield tours in France and Belgium, and they're incredibly sobering um, and really interesting to see. I think it's just amazing that the, that the scars are still there. <laughs> oh, huge scars! Yeah, yeah. they yeah. still yeah. have the Iron Harvest every year. Oh yeah, an exploded ordinance, as I was going to say. Uh, there was one, one, just like one spot we went on one of the tours. We had a few extra minutes, and there was a farm field right next to the site. It had just been plowed within the last couple of days, you could tell. And uh, three of us went, and we literally took five minutes just walking down the furrows of this freshly plowed field and came away with a couple bullets, a couple cartridge cases, a pile of shrapnel, and a, a stripper clip. Wow. From, you know, two or three feet at the edge of the field. Jeez. It's the stuff's just everywhere. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think that it's easy to just see numbers and like big numbers and just kind of get lost with all the zeros, you know, but yeah, something like Actually, that, real visceral. I should clarify that statement. It's everywhere if you're in a place that was on the front lines. If you go, you don't have to go that far from the actual areas where there were trench lines before you, you don't find shells. You, know? you go look yeah. around Paris, there are no shells around Paris. Mm, yeah, makes sense. Yeah, but if you go to like Verdun, I'm sure there's a million. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. What's the, uh, I'm trying to remember, what's the really big hole where they blew like the biggest mine? Oh, I don't remember the oh. name of the biggest one. There are a bunch of those, and they're generally called craters. Um, just such and so crater. Yeah. Um, and I've been to a couple of them, and holy cow, that's that's an impressive hole in the ground. Yeah. For sure. Is it Messine? No, uh, Messine Ridge is a battle. Uh, I think that there was one particular front where they blew something like a dozen of them in one offensive, and so there are a bunch of those that still survive. I don't remember the names off the top of my head. I think they made a movie about that. Yeah, there's been a couple of them. I've seen some stuff about it. Yeah, the Australians. It was the movie was about yeah. the Australians. I think that was Gallipoli. Oh, uh, I'm thinking of. Uh, I don't know how to pronounce this. It's a, it's. <laughs> Brian, you. I guarantee you won't do any worse than the British soldiers did. I well, I mean, it is a British mine, so. Um, uh, Lochnagar. Lochnagar. Okay. Lochnagar, probably. Okay, yeah. Battle of the Psalm. It's funny. There is one. Uh, one of the places we stopped on one of the tours is it's a little museum and it's a, a cafe run by an expat English couple. And our, our tour bus stopped there for lunch. And the cafe is called Ocean Villas, which is, and it's this is like in the middle of France, you know, nowhere near the ocean or even a lake. But that's the name that the British troops gave to this place back during the war. And it's because the actual name in French is Echonvier, which, if you look at it written out, is like Ocean Villas. And so the British just went, ah, Ocean Villas. <laughs> like, uh, Yip, Y-P-R-E-S, became Wipers. Yeah, Wipers. I knew that one. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, there's no harm in trying the pronunciation of French and Belgian names, because I, I guarantee you won't butcher them any more than those guys did. Yeah, that's a good point. All right. the uh, The next question is, uh, what bolt action Milserp rifle exceeded your expectations during a match or range time? Range time, and then the flip side of that, what's one that that disappointed you? Thought was going to be good, but wasn't. So it's got to be the Enfields that disappointed me. Like, I really mm. want to like the Enfields, and they just, I just have really terrible luck getting them to run properly. Sorry, bloke. Um, yes, I just constantly have trouble with Enfields. Yeah, And I, I don't think they deserve it. It's one of those things where, like, if they were really this bad, would they really have been used that long and not have developed some horrible reputation? Yeah, we've talked about that before, specifically with the number fours. We have, we've all had really bad luck with our number fours. Like, I've owned multiples, yeah. and all of them have had issues, um, you know, with, with, you know, jamming of some, of some sort. But I made, I made that, uh, the compilation video of you shooting in, uh, in fields at two gun matches or, you know, and I, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's one of those things where like the, the, as, as Jared said, the infield is the gun that it collects excuses. So <laughs> it's kind of funny. Like, I think people that watch that after I posted it, 
said like maybe I, I don't know who doesn't know you but like some people were like well he obviously doesn't know what he's doing because if it jams you don't you don't know what you're doing and it's like okay well how do you how do you purposely make a i think he knows what he's doing with an <laughs> infield but uh decent at least yeah um but like you know it's if, is the rifle that bad that you have to have any more specialty on how to work a bolt or um <laughs> one one of them that i heard was i think i heard it a couple times was that left-handed it jammed because you were shooting it left-handed. I think. I think. Oh, the rifle can tell. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm also a lefty. It definitely can tell. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, probably the one that was most uh, most impressed me was the the 1917 Enfield. Mm, okay. Um, it, yeah. Which has become one of my favorite bolt rifles of that period because man, it just runs really nicely and it hits nicely and the sights are good and. It's huge and heavy. It's because it's a big boy. Yeah. It is, but that helps tame the recoil a little bit. I, I have it to agree with It just works really well, so. Like, I, I run mine, and I was I, I bought one because I got it pretty cheap, and I was, like, really surprised how awesome it did. And then yeah. running it versus people who were shooting O3s, and I'm shooting better and having better luck with everything, and it was like, this is better, guys, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it doesn't have as nearly as big of a following with like the hardcore CMP shooter match types as the as the 1903. I don't think. Well, it never really got itself into sort of the uh, the institutional mythology. Yeah, yeah, that's a so good it way to put back it. Back to the O3 after the war. Yeah, yeah. Have you I, run? Go ahead. I uh, I got a Honduran 1934 model of 1934. Ooh, nice. And uh, I picked it up, yeah, just at Tulsa. I've been, I've been looking for one of those for a while. And uh, I'm really interested in shooting that side by side with my 1917. And kind of yeah, seeing an overall comparison of the two. Um, recoil and everything. The sights are kind of bad on the 1934. Because it's like, it's basically a rolling block sight on it. But uh, oh, That'd be really cool. Yeah. Have you run a P14 in 303? I have not. I have one, but I've never really done any shooting with it. Okay, I was just curious how it held up versus the thirty out six one. But I would anticipate it being essentially identical, with the exception of obnoxious stripper clips. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. I was wondering how it handled the rimmed round too. Those stripper clips get a lot of excuses as well. <laughs> I, I've noticed the guys that run them slick, they always do something to the clips. They always like polish them with sandpaper. Or something, or stretch them out, or they've just been used for twenty years, so they're they, you know, not to not to hit on the infields that that much. Uh, what? Yeah, it's not like we don't do it all the time, Dan. Sure. Yeah, I know, but they're good but, sports. I think infield collectors you know, are, are pretty good sports. You know, we typically. did we did rate it pretty highly in our in our tier list, though. Yeah, I think so. To the point where people on the on that video when you posted it were, were like. Didn't that one guy change his mind? He's like, oh, I bet you everybody loves the Mausers and everybody hates the Elite Field. Oh, yeah. Yeah, everyone thought we were going to rate the K98K very highly. And, and yeah, no, I didn't actually get, get that high. I don't like the K98Ks, but that's just me. I think it is. Yeah, Jared's hurting inside right now. But I think it is. I think it's a little <laughs> overrated. Like, I still love it and I want to collect them. But I will say that it is probably it's overrated. so overpriced. They are overpriced. Oh, my gosh. Oh, yeah. It's crazy. I can't bring myself to buy anything German. So much money. Yeah, I only, I only, I, I, I don't pay retail for them when I, when I find them. Like I try to only get the ones that are good deals, sort of thing. 
Um, I've gotten fairly, fairly so lucky. Only a thousand dollars instead of two thousand dollars. Exactly. Something like that. One of the that. most mass-produced firearms of all time. Yeah, essentially, yeah. Like it's in the top ten, I'm pretty sure, isn't it? Maybe at least a top twenty for sure. Yeah. Top twenty, yeah. Top ten, I don't know. There's a lot of stuff out there. That's true. Yeah. Now, yeah. in terms of available on the collector's market in the United States, uh, yeah, there's a massive number of them. Mm-hmm. Same with Lugers. Like, there's oh, way yeah. more of them than you would if if you were trying to calculate uh, quantity based on collector price. Oh yeah, yeah. That's really I have, that's. I don't have a German Luger. I have a single K98K because it was the fourth gun in a Rock Island lot that I bought that I got to get something else. I don't even remember what now. And it had a, an actually decently nice 43 K98K in it. I'm like, oh well, I was gonna resell this, but well, it was a good deal. I'll just keep it. Yeah, it checks the box. Yeah, it checks yeah. the box. Exactly. And that's the only reason I have one, because I couldn't bring myself to go out of my way to pay market price for a, a German 98K. Yeah. Yeah, that's... It's hard. Yeah. It's Going weird. out of my I... way to pay market price to buy a French occupation production German 98K, but that's different. That's totally mm. different. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. What else you got? Uh, did the... Okay. Yeah. Going back to French guns oh, here. We. Mine. Uh. Yeah, yeah. Aaron asked this. Uh, you probably asked it better than I have it written down here. But did uh, was it the Lebel rifle design, or did the rifle Lebel rifle design really matter, or was it just the cartridge that had such uh, the the influence on the military arms race that had such an impact? Neither man. The cartridge is a crap design, and the rifle is an obsolete design the moment it was introduced. Uh, the fundamentally transformative thing about it was the powder. That's what Danny said. At just the powder. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, story of the Lebel Le development is really interesting in that they actually they spent more time on the bullet than they did on the entire rifle because at the beginning they thought they had plenty of time to do it properly and figure out what was best. So they spent all the time on what's the exact di- what diameter of bullets actually going to work best with this stuff. And then the Minister of War changes, and the new guy. Uh, knows that he's got this fantastic new technology and wants to make sure that, you know, France doesn't get left behind. And what if the Germans attack us tomorrow and we haven't actually built it yet? How ironic would that be? And so he gives them like six months to have the new rifle on his desk. And it's such a short time period that they essentially have no choice but to adapt things already in inventory. And so they take what is, it's basically just a tube-fed Kropotschak. It's a black powder tube fed Kropotschak and a, and the cartridge for it, 11 millimeter gras, take 11 gras, neck it down to your new eight millimeter bullet and give it enough taper that the point of the bullet won't hit the primer in front of it and stuff it into a slightly redesigned Kropotschak that has front locking lugs and bing, bang, boom, there's your label. It, like I said, it's obsolete the, the moment that it's introduced. I've, I've heard it. I've, I've heard it called the last of the transitional rifles. Because there's like the the transitional rifle period, which is the the tube guns, and like that's like the last one of those, and everything forward is considered the like the World War One like modern-ish smokeless guns, and it's I can considered see that. like if you've got a family considered. of single shot black powder, and then a family of repeating black powder rifles that you'd call transitionals, mm-hmm. and then and then your first generation of smokeless powder repeaters, yeah, yes, that's that's what I was trying to get at. <laughs> 
Yeah, the label is in every way. It's one of the black powder rifles, except that it doesn't use black powder. Yeah, that that is really how it feels. Yeah. Which is, it's neat, like from a collectability or even like uh, you're taking it to the range and you want something different. Mechanically. It's, it's fun. Yeah. Mechanically, it's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, yes. yeah. But look at the... The first good Mausers, the first uh, smokeless powder Mausers are out in, what, 1891? The French haven't even finished building their main batch of labels. You got 1891, you got 1889 Mausers out there yeah. that are basically better in every way. Yeah. Paul, he had a, uh, he had a Mauser of 1888, uh, which isn't to be con- confused with the German, you know, Gewehr 88. Uh, it had a, like a weird long i think it was like a seven or eight round single stack magazine that was kind of weird and then you refined that a little bit into the 1889 but yeah yeah the belgians had a better rifle three years later exactly yeah it seems really the labelle didn't actually go into production until 87 yeah it just seems like man if they just had a few more months maybe like you do you think the french would have like slapped a the the monlicker magazine onto it maybe or done something with that um they were actually looking at uh the enfield magazine system uh, or well the lee the magazine system and what was the other one? i ought to know this off the top of my head and i don't um they were looking seriously at a couple of the the good modern uh, magazine systems well, well, David, i think it would have been fascinating if sorry that... i was just gonna say the monlicker magazine hadn't really been shown until 1886 yeah, yeah that's well, that's what I mean. If like instead of the 1886 Labelle, like it kind of the development was another six months or year or whatever after the 1886 Monlicker came out. I think it would have been really interesting to see if they if they had the time to do it properly and they came up with a detachable magazine Lee system uh, and a, a proper rimless case because they absolutely knew about rimless cases and they knew they were better. They just didn't have the time to fully develop one. Um, then they could have been building a rifle that wouldn't have been obsolete. Uh, you maybe wouldn't have needed to adapt the Berthier. In fact, you almost certainly, like the Berthier never would have existed because the reason that it existed in the first place was because the, carb- the tube-fed carbine cavalry version of the Labelle was a terrible idea. And so they went to a Monlicker system instead for a cavalry carbine. And that was the Berthier. And then by the time you get to World War I, the label is out of production because they've built enough of them that they basically mothballed the, the tool line, the production line. The Bautier is still in production because they're still periodically making batches of them for the, the African and Asian colonies. And it's a cheaper rifle. And frankly, I think there's an argument to be made that it's a more practical rifle. And so they just take the Senegalese Bautier and give it a label bayonet and presto, you've got a substitute standard French Army infantry rifle. But none of that would have happened if they'd had essentially the French 1890 version of the Lee Enfield with a rimless case. Yeah. Geez. Hmm. Just was just that, a little bit. Just a little bit more time. That's was all that Minister of War trying to make a name for himself? Like he's the guy that pushed this idea forward? Is that what he trying to do? No, no. I didn't find any good information on his specific motive. Um there have been a lot of French rifle adoptions that were spurred by a sort of like, ah, oh, shit, the Germans just did what? Kind of reaction. Uh, so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so I guess besides the smokeless powder, 
Um, what is the most influential aspect of French military firearms? Sort of maybe from that, I don't know, from that area. era. Or In some office. ways, it's never been, they've never been hugely influential on the rest of the world. Like, people don't really go out of their way to copy French design stuff. Now, earlier, I, I would say this is, there's more examples of this early than there are late. So a lot of the earlier developments, things like the Minier ball, the idea that we can have a hollow base bullet so that you can undersize a bullet and load it quickly and easily. And then when you fire it, the pressure in the chamber is going to expand the base of the bullet to seal it against the rifling. That's a French design. And that took off like everybody used that. Um, but when you get into the post-World War One era, I have a hard time coming up with much that the French were doing that was was called influential in insofar as other people copied it. Hmm. I figured you were going to go after like the RSC. But, well, like, semi-auto rifles. That's where I figured you were going to go, but if the R- the RSC was influential in in some ways, like it clearly influenced John Garand. But John Garand, not like the United States military. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Cuz he still had to sell it to them cuz his original design they threw back and said, "No, we want something else." Yeah, he worked on it for like 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. Yeah. yeah early it, versions of that gun were in like 1919, 1920. And they, like BAR magazines, right? At one point, I think. Uh, Probably. And, and then like, they're like, oh, no, we want, we want an in-block clip. Or they just yeah. didn't want. Yeah. They didn't want a magazine. magazine. They didn't want yeah. a I mean, magazine. There are legitimate reasons to go with an in-block clip. It's cheaper, it's easier, it weighs a lot less for the soldiers. Makes a cool ping. Truly really aren't disposable. Yeah. Oh no, that, that ping, it gave away their position. That's what I mean. <laughs> they, they knew that they were out of ammo. It makes a cool mm. ping. You know, everyone can debate no, Danny for 50 years. No, Danny. They would throw it against a rock, and then, then the enemy would stand up. That'd be true. I saw it on the History Channel. Yeah. <laughs> mm. It's so sunny. It's so sad that there actually is a History Channel thing that says that. Yeah. Um. So LaBelle versus the three-shot Bertier long rifle. Which one would you prefer to have in the front lines of World War One? That's a tricky question. I would probably have to go with the Bertier. Um, it's a lighter rifle. I think it's a significantly handier rifle. Um, three rounds sucks, but at least it's fast to reload it. Uh, reloading a LaBelle tube is not fun. Um, pro- yeah, I think I'd have to go with the Bertier. Yeah, I think I would too. Yeah, the mm-hmm. LaBelle is, it does, you know, eight shots is nice, but then it's basically, you know, a single loader after that point. It's it's a yeah. it's a single shot gun. You you load eight one at a time, shoot eight one at a time. Yeah, and there are elements to running that gun that are you have to pay attention to. Like you have to open the bolt strongly enough. Yeah. To pop the elevator up, like you can short stroke it in ways that can't happen with guns that aren't tube fed. Yeah, that's a good point. I've only ever owned the only French rifle I've ever owned is a Bertier. It was a five shot conversion, but and Danny actually has it now. But you know, like you said, though, it's it's just so as big as it is, it feels much lighter and it's very well balanced. Yeah. Fun fact, the three and five round clips are interchangeable between all the guns. Hmm. They stick a three round clip into a five round magazine without any problem. 
And as long as you only put three rounds in it, you can actually use a five round clip in a three round gun. The bottom 40% of the clip sticks out the bottom. Now, is that on purpose or happy little accident? Um, kind of both. They deliberately kept the clip release notch in the same place so that they didn't have to change the, the trigger mechanism assembly. The, the clip release is built into the front of the trigger guard. So the three-round clip has a single catch right in the middle. The five-round clips have two catches that are both positioned the same distance from the end of the clip as okay. the three-rounder. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I don't think they really anticipated the ammunition, uh, the clips being interchanged between the guns. But what they wanted to do was minimize the design change to the tooling yeah. of the new rifles. As, as somebody yeah. in manufacturing, I understand that tooling tooling costs so much and is so so long. Yeah, yeah. Th- those little clips, the French French Bertier clips, have really shot up in price. Oh, lovely. <laughs> I'm glad I got a lot of them a long time ago. I made Danny buy a bunch one time, and he's like, "They're not going to sell," and then started selling them. No, I never, I, I never sold any. I, I thought still you sold a what? Nope. All right, I made you buy I saw, a bunch because they were like five yeah. bucks a piece. Yeah, with ammo, like full of ammo, five dollars uh, a clip for a bunch of them. They had a, they had a mix of uh, five and three shot ones. I just bought them all because you were like, "Buy them all." Yeah. So yeah, luckily you just don't have to worry about it ever again. That, they don't make them yep, anymore, exactly. Danny. Yeah. Yeah, every, every now and then I'll run across one at a gun show, like in a box that he doesn't know what it is, and I'll just, you know, it's like a couple bucks, and I'll, I'll buy it or whatever. I'll run across those every now and then. But. That's how I found a K31 stripper clip in a random box at a gun show. There's a clip that's gone up in price. Oh, yeah. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that guy was like, I don't know what this is. A dollar? Sure. Sold. Done, sir. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. The one that I kick myself over. Like, still to this day, this was 10 years ago, I went past some dude who had a, a box of random AK mags for 10 bucks, or five, I think it was five bucks at the time. And on the top of the bin was one of the Bosnian fleur-de-lis mags. Oh. And I looked at it, and I'm like, nah, nah, nah. And, oh. like, later at that same gun show, I realized, like, that was stupid. And I went back, and it was long gone. And now they're, they're like, $300. So I'll never have one. Now. I felt that. I felt that one. Yep. Been there. Um, so we, we brought up the RSC a bit ago and uh, Aaron and I were talking about this. We're like, how influential we were trying to talk about how influential it was. But then I don't know what happened to them after World War One. So what happened to the French RSC rifle after World War One? That is a fantastic question. And to a large extent, I would also like to know um, there is nothing researched on the RSCs. Um, as far as I can tell, there's basically nothing known about them in French. Uh, definitely nothing in English beyond what you've got in Proud Promise, the collector grade book. Uh, I think a lot of this is because the material is still in French archives, and a lot of it's probably classified. It is worth pointing out that like people, a lot of people know that. They're like, yeah, the French stuff's all still classified. Well, the reason is it doesn't automatically declassify. With the French archives, it gets declassified if someone requests to see it and it's classified and then they review it. And if it's not actually important, then they declassify it. And so like all the RSC records could be declassified, I expect, but someone has to actually go looking for them and inquire. As far yeah, as I can tell, no one find really the actual that. record, right? And request the specific yeah. record. Yeah. So 
honestly, uh, I would love, I plan to, I would love to do a, a whole book on the RSC someday. But I can't do it until I not only can fluently read French, but I have to be able to read the original French handwritten script. Because that's what a lot of those records are going to be in. Someday that will happen. I am working on my French every day. And when it does, I want to spend some time in those archives and try and do that original research. But I haven't been able to yet. What I can tell you is some RSCs absolutely stayed in French service into the 1930s. Uh, for years now, I've been keeping a database of every RSC that I run across in private and museum collections. And I've got like 50 of them now. And about 10% of them are end stamped, which means they were in the French army in 1932 and had their chambers reamed for ball 1932 N. Uh, I have heard anecdotally that the 1918 carbines were actually issued to some units of border guards in the 19, late 1930s and uh, were used at the beginning of World War II, but it's entirely anecdotal. Beside the fact that I think every 1918 carbine I've seen is Enmar, if I remember correctly. Um, there are stories out there, the sort of the lore is that the guns had their semi-auto mechanisms disabled and they were issued out to like Algerian troops or some sort of French African colonial troops. I remain dubious about that until I see something really official about it. Uh, I haven't seen any like identifiable standardized down conversion like that. I've heard suggestions that it was that that sort of conversion did happen, but it was so that the guns were more easily purchased on the civilian market as annual guns instead of semi-autos that doesn't necessarily hold water because until 2012, the fact that it was in eight millimeter label meant it was classified as a military weapon anyway. Um, there's a lot of a lot of open questions about what did happen to the RSCs after World War One. Yeah, because oh. Danny and I were just talking about this to each other the, when we were trying to come up with questions, and I'm like, it just disappeared. And it's not like so, it was a, a low production. I mean, it was low production for the war, but it was. 86,000 of them. Yeah, and and it was late production, so it's not like they all got destroyed at the beginning of the war. No, not at all. Now, the one thing I will say is there was absolutely no effort to convert them to modern ammunition. So with the end of World War I, the French immediately understood that basically all of their small arms were obsolete. Seven five, or the, the eight label cartridge was garbage and obsolete, and it was seriously holding back their small arms development. And they instituted very quickly a program to replace all of the small arms. The problem is economic and political issues prevented almost all of that program from actually taking place until the 1930s. So the thing that they were able to do quickly was develop a rimless cartridge. That's the 75 by 54 French, originally 75 by 58. And they develop a light machine gun to replace the Chauchat. If you think about that French Chatellerot light machine gun, that's the model 2429. That gun was first adopted in 1924, which is really early for a modern sort of light machine gun. And they had the cartridge already developed at that point. And it was really clear that the RSC is not a rifle that's well-suited and efficient to convert to a rimless cartridge. Like, there's a lot of design choices on the RSC that are specifically done to accommodate the 8mm label cartridge. And someone very wisely recognized that it, they were better off just scrapping the RSC and starting over with a new semi-auto rifle. 
Unfortunately, they didn't manage to get it until 1944. But that's the reason that, that the RSCs didn't, like, that's the reason you don't see 80,000 of them rechambered for 7.5. Mm. So the question is, what did they do with those guns? Because they did have a lot of them at the end of the war. We know for a fact that they didn't scrap them because a bunch of them are still around with end markings. And, um, and of course, a bunch came home as souvenirs with U.S. soldiers and uh, and they're in museums. I thought I thought they would have given like not given, but like distributed them out to the colonies or something. But then, like, I was thinking they're they're probably too complicated to maintain. So I'm like, they wouldn't have probably sent them out too far, I would think. Yeah. And I, unfortunately, I don't know, but I would Mm. love to find out. Um, The other interesting thing about RSCs is that there's a whole bunch of variations in the parts of an RSC. So there's two different bolt handles. There's a steel and an aluminum, and they have different disassembly mechanisms. The steel is a substantially improved design. And then I found them with four different types of bolt hold open. There's a, a long one piece, a short one piece, a short two piece. And there's a substantial number of them with no bolt hold open. Like at first I thought it was just, oh, this one's missing its bolt hold open. But a lot of them have none. And that seems, there are too many of them for that to be a coincidence. There are brazing marks on virtually every RSC magazine, magazine cover. I don't know why. I don't know when that was done. Don't I? It seems like that's an after-the-fact upgrade to something. I don't think I've. I can't remember ever seeing one that doesn't have those brazing marks on it. They improved with the 1918 carbine. They did a bunch of things. They improved the magazine catch. Um, they added the dust cover, of course. Like no one knows the the developmental cycle of the RSC. With the Lebel or the Bertier, we can tell you exactly when they made this change to adopt the new cartridge and this change to reinforce the rear sight and this change to fix the bayonet lug and, and the follower and all these things. And we know when, and we know why And the RSC, there's just none of that information out there, man. That is kind of cool though, that you could be on the frontier. Oh yeah. But it's cool that you could be on the frontier of that, like research and finding out, you know, a hundred, you know, hundred years later and it's still, still possible. It would be fun. One out. Yeah. For me and like the 12 people who give a crap. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there are dozens of us. <laughs> I will write my PhD thesis on the bolt hold open of the RSC 1970. <laughs> uh, all right, here we go. Hypothetical one for you. Uh, you are heading to Indochina in the early 1950s to serve. Uh, which common primary and secondary weapons from the French arsenal would you take with you? <laughs> uh, an M1 carbine? Probably. Oh, okay. The French had a lot of M1 carbines. They liked that thing. If I'm going to, okay, so if I'm going to Indochina, early 1950s, um, the Moss 44 or Moss 49 are options. They're very good rifles, but frankly, I think they're overpowered for what is necessary. Um, the Mat 49 would be an option. That would be tempting. Those are really good guns. Um, Probably more tempting to me because I just want one myself right now, and that's clouding my view of what would be the best thing to actually have. Um, they did have, like, a Chatelero light machine gun may not be the worst thing, although I wouldn't want to carry it. Frankly, I think there's good reason that they really liked the M1 carbine. If I'm in Indochina, ranges aren't that long. It's a real light, handy gun. It's got more stopping power to it than a 9mm submachine gun. 
a lot more firepower than a Moss 44 or 49. Just, you know, I can carry more ammo. I can change the magazines more easily. The magazines are bigger to start with. I would probably have to go with an M1 carbine. Sorry, France. <laughs> Swerve. Wow. Yeah, didn't see that yeah, one. Didn't see that yeah. one coming, did you? What yeah. about all sidearm? <laughs> yeah. What about the sidearm? Oh, sidearm? Um, I don't know. Whatever. 1911. French. So the French sidearms in Indochina was like everything in the world they used. There were P-38s, there were Lugers, there were 1911s, there were 1935As, there were 1935Ss. I'm sure there were some Mac 1950s having been, you know, yeah. depending on what year we're talking about, just come online. Um, there were probably 1892 revolvers still out there. Oh, man. Honestly, I don't really care that much about the handgun. As in, like, I like handguns. I think they're interesting. But I, as a practical matter, I don't think it really makes much difference what one I would happen to have. None of them are massively better than any of the others. Mm. The two I would have picked was the the Mat 49 and a, uh, a P-38. Okay. See, <laughs> I'm biased against the P-38 because I actually have one of the L-Block uh, P-38s that was... It was from the parts that they took from Mauser when they finally abandoned the plant, brought them back to Chatellerot, and they assembled the guns at Chatellerot. And they are infamously poor quality. Like they didn't, they didn't know what the heat treating procedure was, or they just mistranslated it or something. Everything I read is that those guns break locking lugs and slides if you actually shoot them much. Okay, so so I'm sure very... a, lot of the, a lot of the actual Mauser production P38s are just peachy. My Chatellerot production one, I'm never going to fire because it doesn't seem like a good idea. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Well, <laughs> what do you... Since, yeah, yeah. Uh, what do you consider to be the best combat handgun of World War II, even though it might not make a huge Im- impact? Again, my first thought is it doesn't really matter. Um, if you are going into combat in World War II with a handgun, like, things are already pretty bad. That's pretty rough. Um 1911 and Luger stand out. The P38, actually, probably, I'd probably rather have a P38 than a Luger. Um, high power, maybe. But in my experience, like you were talking about with the infields, high powers collect a lot of excuses. My experience actually shooting original high powers hasn't been all that great. Um, I'd probably have to just default back to 1911 again. I'm rocking the Viz 35. Um, you know what? The other... <laughs> The other interesting choice would be a Beretta 1934. Okay. From the perspective of it doesn't really make much difference, so let's take one that's reliable and as small as possible. Yeah, and it's 380, so it's not, like, super underpowered. It'll hurt if someone shoots you with it, for sure. And they're small, and they're reliable. Like, those guns just work. I wouldn't feel terrible if I had a Beretta 1934. Did not, would never have guessed that one. That's good. Mm-hmm. This is good. Okay. Uh, what are your thoughts on the U.S. Army adopting the uh, 6.8 by 51 or the 277 Fury cartridge? Um, In a nutshell, fry eyes. <laughs> <laughs> like, really? I, I want to see where this goes. Are we really doing this? This is, you know, that's a bold move, Cotton. Let's see how that goes for them. Um, it is a significant shift in... Uh, in priorities to say, yeah, we're going to abandon this idea of everyone having 210 rounds on them. And we're going to drop it back to hundred, 120. Um, 
in exchange for being able to defeat body armor that originally was Russian and Chinese body armor. And now I think we're pretty much only worried about Chinese body armor. Uh, (laughs) I, I think it's, it's a great development for the machine guns. So the way these, as I see it, the way these decisions always work is, are we going to have a rifle cartridge or a machine gun cartridge? If it's a machine gun cartridge, the rifle is going to be overpowered and, you know, ammunition carrying capacity is reduced. Soldiers load is increased. If we have a rifle cartridge, then uh, we're basically going to have to have a secondary machine gun using a machine gun cartridge. And we've had a rifle cartridge for a long time, which is why we have 240s out there in 308. And if the army is truly going to follow through and this project doesn't get canceled by some future administration, um, that cartridge is going to be great out of the the machine guns. Because I think they're getting a gun that is... Uh, it's more like the size and weight of a 249, but shooting a cartridge with a, a substantial range and power potential, which works out. That's a great setup for the machine, the squad support weapons. In the rifle, I am, I am curious if like they'll have to wait until these rifles actually see a serious conflict. But I'm really curious if the outcome of the first serious combat use of the M5 is a reassessment of the importance of ballistic power versus ammunition carrying capacity. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I think that's a good way to say it because it does on one hand, it does feel like a step back. It does feel like, you know, when you try to create one thing to please everybody, you get something that will, that never really lives up to that. There is no right answer to this question. It's, that's why, you know, bullpup versus traditional rifle there is no right answer there's pros and cons both ways everything is compromises in this sort of thing um i think it's important to point out that the 6.8 was not developed specifically for longer range it was developed specifically for body armor yeah or terminal ballistic potential um yeah i actually have a sig spear that is en route i think it actually shipped today or it ships tomorrow so I'm going to have a chance to tear one apart and do some shooting with it. Uh, <laughs> I discovered it's actually the exact same gun that Garen Thumb shot. Oh, okay, cool. He I saw that video. the same yeah. people for loaning it to him that are loaning one to me. So unless there's these guys have two of them, uh, it's the same rifle that he shot is coming here next. And I'm really curious about that. One of the, one of the unfortunate things is the, the full velocity military ammunition is not available on the market. You'll see two loadings for this that are available. One is all brass case, and one is the hybrid case with the stainless steel uh, case head. All brass ammunition is lower pressure. It's deliberately made as a cheaper or you know a more affordable practice or training ammunition, and it's lower velocity. Uh, I would be I would love to be able to actually try some of the proper military ammo. Because that's what's actually going to matter in terms of recoil control. That's what guys are going to be using if these things get used in a, a real fight. And I'm a little bit concerned that use of the cheaper, more available uh, brass-cased reduced power ammo is going to uh, cloud people's understanding of how these rifles are actually are to shoot. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's, but, a good, that's a good point. Um, yeah, people look at the massively high chamber pressure. It's an 80,000 PSI cartridge. And I think a lot of that is to develop velocity that they're getting specifically in a short barrel. You, know, you can get that velocity out of a 308, but you need like a 26 or a 28-inch barrel to do it. 
Yeah. They wanted to make sure that they could get it out of a carbine-sized modern combat rifle. Which is so interesting because then it it's like basically it's meant to have a suppressor on it all the time anyway. So then it's really long. Well, it's not really long. It's back to the normal length, but it's suppressed. Yeah. I don't. Yeah. I have to look at the measurement, but I suspect your 13 inch barrel with a can is about the same as a 16 inch barrel with a flash hider. That's a fair assessment, I'd say. I think the use of in of universal suppressors is a fantastic one. Uh, It's there are health benefits to it, obviously, but there are also, I think, significant combat communications benefits. (laughs) The reason that we know that the M1 ping is a a ridiculous myth is because how many people can be around eight rounds of an M1 going off and then hear the ping? Yeah. Well, yeah. And all your guys have cans. Now you can hear officers and, and just anybody next to you. You can hear what they're saying. You can hear them, you know, warning you that there's, you know, Check out the, the there's a guy to your left, or we're going to get up and move after this burst, or whatever. Communications are important, and I, I think suppressors are way overdue on military rifles. Yeah, I definitely think it's a part of the future. You know. Also, you think we can overturn Miller when it comes to suppressors if they become military standard? Mm. <laughs> yeah. God, I Maybe wish. the answer is no, but yeah. not because it's yeah. not true. And just that 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 part always uh, makes the people like in our international group laugh because like in the UK suppressors are like a thing that's like oh yeah oh yeah everyone like, has their totally ridiculous elements of gun law the US is no exception exactly but it was always funny to to the international guys are like what do you mean you have to register or pay extra like, money for a suppressor Hamish from New Zealand when he was on here he's like oh yeah you, anyone can just buy a buy a suppressor just over the counter just no paperwork or whatever just buy it it's a for hearing the other place where the u.s is like actually way more restrictive than most of europe is in full auto conversions to semi-auto uh now there have been some changes very recently but until very recently in europe if you took a machine gun and you just converted it to semi-auto now it's a semi-auto we have this stupid de facto decision in the u.s that if it was ever a machine gun it's always a machine gun even if you've you know welded the gas port shut um, yeah that's always really bugged me i was talking to bloke on the range and what really bugged me is he's got some really cool guns like he's got an a52 or uh chap i think is actually and a full auto famas and he could buy literally any gun that i own and import it into switzerland I can't, I couldn't, if I wanted to, buy any of these things from him and import them into the U.S. because they were all originally machine guns. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, that's, that's, that really sucks. Um, and it's got weird unintended consequences, too, with, like, the M2 marked carbines. Yeah. Because that's, like, a weird gray area. Why is that a machine gun? Because it says two on it. That's why. It's not yeah. mechanically any different, but it says two, so it's a machine gun. Yeah, that was... Like, I got into an argument. This is a weird rabbit hole, too, because, like, I got into an argument with a guy about PSLs because they couldn't be... Imp- like, none of the ones in the U.S. are actual military receivers because they're not allowed to be brought in here. Because even though they were never able to be select fire, they had the third pinhole, so you can't have them. Right. This just blows my mind. <laughs> oh, yeah. As soon as you begin to drill that hole in an air, that third hole in an AR-15 receiver, it's it automatically becomes illegal just from a little, 
drilling that little hole. Yeah. It, didn't always, it wasn't always that way. I actually have a video that I've filmed that I haven't published yet on the difference between the FN-49 and the AFN-49. And there are 2,000 Luxembourg AFN-49s that are here in the U.S. that nobody realized were full auto when they imported them back in the early 60s. And they showed up, and some guy in inner arms went, oh, this switch on the side makes it full auto. And they went to the Treasury Department, who was running on regulations at the time, running the NFA at the time. They basically said, hey, if we take the levers off and we grind off this little lug, uh, can we just sell them a semi-auto because then they're semi-auto? And Treasury went, yeah, that's cool. Man, that's back in the good old days right there. Yeah. <laughs> Man. Um, all right. The, the last thing is less of a question and more of a uh, funny side note. Um, complete the sentence. The M95 kicks like a blank. You will. Everyone knows that. Freaking A. <laughs> what the hell, guys? <laughs> and that's like, right? They tell you that that comes on the little owner's form when you buy an M95. Dang it. I Thanks will so much say, for that. It will not part, leave. An M95 carbine in 8x56 is one of the most unpleasant millsurps I've ever shot. That's yeah. what Danny says, too, and I don't believe it. It I is to will, me, too. I'll shoot any of the other carbines more than I want to shoot an M95, specifically an 8x56. The 8x50 is a different story, but I'll shoot an M44 or Mosin, no big deal. And, and yes, I can shoot an, M, uh, an M95 carbine. It's not like it's cripplingly powerful. It's just not fun. No, I did I did a little video called the Kickin' Carbine Showdown where I tried to shoot like all the most like recoiling guns that everyone talks about, like the, the Mosin M38 that shoots the fireball. That's its cliche and everything. But um, I, I did it shot with two other guys. And the one we all agreed kicked the worst was a three-shot Bertier carbine really? yeah we all agreed uh uh milserp i'm trying to remember it, it was make. surplus ball n wasn't it probably that's like the eight label equivalent of eight by 56 because yeah that stuff was intended to be machine gun ammo like it's it's overly powerful machine gun ammo and it it was only really like you were never supposed to actually shoot that stuff in the bertier it was safe but the guys carrying those carbines chambered for ball n they're a machine gun crew or an artillery crew. If they have to actually use that little carbine, they're screwed already. Yeah, if I if I remember correctly, I think it almost looked like the tips of the rounds were like snipped off. It shouldn't. That's weird. Yeah, some of the stuff that Danny bought in those clips had the 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 points snipped off the front for some reason. <laughs> Are you just buying Bubba's pissing hot dum dum reloads? <laughs> uh, <Yeah>. Maybe. <laughs> they weren't reloads. No, this was this was a real French surplus. I I make a point of of only shooting surplus when I can, unless it's something, you know, like 7.7 seven Japanese or whatever. But I try to only shoot, especially in, in comparison. Um, like I have a little series of like never shot a Milserp before where I have yeah. somebody shoot, you know, and compare Milserps just to get a completely unbiased opinion. Like they, they don't care about Mauser versus Enfield. So you lay two in front of them, you let them shoot it and let them see what they think. And then I yeah. always shoot Milserp ammo out of the out of each one so they get a real okay. apples to apples comparison of recoil and everything so it's understandable it is worth pointing out that you really shouldn't shoot like all the surp essentially all the surplus eight label is ball 1932 n and you really should not shoot it in any french gun that doesn't have that n mark on the chamber yeah um 
but then even in, even once you do you're not necessarily getting the accurate original feel because when those guns were actually used as primary you know infantry weapons um they were running like ball d i think um which is pretty well duplicated by the pervy partisan um, that okay. PPU is safe to shoot in N and non-N marked guns. You can use it in anything. And I think if you try that, you'll find it's a bit more pleasant. Okay. Yeah, that, that's good to know. Well, I try to get cartridges or at least loadings that are close to the original. And it seems like a lot of the, a lot of the commercial stuff is like the, the, they're trying to be on the safe side, which doesn't give the full recoil experience. Yeah. Yeah. 8 Nambu is really bad that way. Um, the other thing I would say with the French surplus is, in my experience at least, stuff with the red primer sealant is crap. It's all duds and hang fires. Stuff with the sort of black-blue primer sealant will actually run. Okay. Good to know. I'll, I'll look that for that. Vary, I did remember the color, but I've heard there was a specific one to look out for. The red's bad. I better but it know is why a this... source of cheap Hotchkiss stripper clips. Strips. Oh, that's where I've heard it before because they're almost all on the on the Hotchkiss ones, aren't they? Yeah. Dang. Nice. Well, that's uh, that's all the questions we have. Um, oh, okay. For Ian, um, I don't know if there's anything you wanted to talk about or if you want to plug something that you're doing. <laughs> Not that we have any followers that don't know who you are or anything, but well, uh, if you haven't seen Forgotten Weapons, there's an awful lot of. I would like to think interesting gun videos, especially interesting French gun videos over there. Um, current projects, uh, I am working on a book on Finnish small arms. That's going to be, I think we probably have one book coming out before that, that I'm doing, but it's uh, closer to, uh, I, won't, I don't want to say a coffee table book, but it's not a massive collector's guide. What I'm aiming for with the Finnish book is a passive collector's guide covering rifles, pistols, machine guns, um, submachine guns of the the Finnish small Finnish small arms, and I'm excited about that. It's a lot of fun to be working on. Obviously, the most interesting section to most of the American market is going to be Mosins, because the Finns did some really neat, cool stuff with Mosins. Um, but that, that's that book's probably at least two years away. So I'd be interested actually to learn about the Carcanos. <laughs> uh, sadly, I'm not really including them. Oh, uh, dang it. So the, okay, so the problem is the Finns used basically everything that existed. Yeah, of course, they, they were just, they, everybody <laughs> was just sh- throwing stuff at them and be like, "Here, take it, take it, go kill Russians." Yeah. <laughs> kind of like Ukraine. Actually. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so the problem is, in doing a book, I have to set some sort of scope, or else it'll be a never-ending project. And the scope that I decided on was guns that were either manufactured in Finland or mechanically altered in Finland. So fair enough. It will cover all the Mosins, and I'm going to cover Finnish Lugers because they did a bunch of rebarreling and changed sights and and made some other modifications to Lugers. But when it comes to all the other stuff, the the Beretta 34s, the C96s, the Lugers, um, the high powers. Well, sorry, not the Lugers. The high powers, the Carcanos, the Swedish Mausers, all that stuff. The Shoshas, actually. In fact, my own Shosha is a Finnish acceptance Shosha. Oh. Um, I'm leaving out all that stuff because otherwise it would just be too overwhelming of a project. And yeah. the guns, it's an Italian Carcano in 735. Like, read up on, on it in the Italian reference works. It's yeah. that's everything. Man, that's really cool. I'm, yeah, I'm excited for your books to come out. The, in the latest one, uh, what is it? Arming the dragon or 
So we did two. My book is called Pistols of the Warlords. Okay. And then we are reprinting Arming the Dragon, which Dolph Goldsmith wrote back in the 1990s. Okay, cool. Those are both extremely close to being shipped at this point. Shipped means shipped over to the U.S., which means it'll take a couple of months to get here. But the books are all printed. They are printing the covers now. It took us like an extra month to get the cover finalized and done properly. Um, it's holy crap printing a book during COVID. And I still consider this during COVID because China's still got, I think China has more people literally under lockdown right now than the entire population of the U.S. Yeah, um, that, that actually cool. reminds me, I just skipped the whole question here, which was, what is one of the most unexpectedly challenging aspects of writing slash publishing a book post-2020? Oh, crap, that's an easy one. Uh, finding paper. <laughs> uh, yeah. Of all the things that I thought would be an issue of book publishing, finding paper was not one of them. Uh, we recently, we just pre-launched a book on Japanese, uh, Imperial Japanese swords, 1873 to 1945. We didn't do a Kickstarter. We just did, we did a pre-sale on our own website. And in order to publish that book, so we can't publish it in China because it's got a fair bit of discussion about Japan in China that is not palatable to the Chinese communist government. So we're publishing it in North America. We have, uh, there is a five-month delay. We've already put in the order now, and it's, we expect a five-month delay before the, the paper mill can actually supply the paper to print the book. And we had to sign a contract that includes an open clause that if the paper price goes up, we're liable for it. With no, we can't, we're paying them a down payment on the printing. And our publisher, our printer, is not able to actually place a fixed order with the, the paper company because that's how totally screwed up the supply chain is right now. It's, in, it's insane. And I never would have predicted that that would be a thing. And yet, here it is. Wow. Yeah. Sorry, that went off on a bit of a non No, 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 that's, no that's good. Right, yeah. <laughs> Jeez, just paper. Yeah. Well, I guess it makes yeah. sense if there's a lumber shortage and everything. I guess it's just the trees, we did, getting the trees. So we got some pushback on Arming the Dragon being printed in China, which I understand. Um, Chaspota Famas was originally printed in the U.S. When we did Arming the Dragon, we reached out to that printer because their quality was good. Their support and service was kind of awful, and we didn't really want to work with them again. But we tried to get a quote from them, and they wouldn't even quote Arming the Dragon. Like, we are not interested in attempting that project. Like, what? Really? Is, okay. Um, oh, okay. It's, yeah. It's yeah. funny. Your yeah. job is to print books. We don't want to do that. Exactly. But this no, is your right? job. It was like, the fact. I think the fact that we had a large number of books to print actually worked against us. They're like, oh, that one's too hard. You want too many copies of it. So we're going to pass. Wow. That's all. Ju it's just, it's all opposite. <laughs> it's all just upside down. It, yeah, it really is. It was a bit of naivete on my part to not anticipate that the Chinese communist government would potentially have issue with a book talking about China. Um, I think we got a bit lucky on Arming the Dragon, but it wasn't, we weren't hit more badly. We... They objected to a bunch of elements on our maps, and I'll talk about that in detail once the books actually get here. Um, I kind of don't want to tempt fate by discussing it before that, while the books are still in China. But yeah. what we ended up doing was we just did we, we deleted the map from the book entirely, 
We printed it as a separate loose leaf insert um, outside of China. Oh, so smart. We'll include it with the book when they ship. Um, yeah. I probably should have anticipated that that would be a thing. I just never even, I mean, come on. I'm in America. trying to, they're trying to make it happen. to me the government would censor books for publication. People talk <laughs> about that happening here. There are people who talk about, like, yeah, the horrible censorship in the U.S. In the U.S., it's, it's social pressure. In China, it is literally the government that shows up and says, you cannot print that. If you print that, we'll put you in jail. And it's, it's two different things. Um, it, that's one of those things that's opened my eyes to the, how, how good we really have it here in the U.S. in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Were they, um, did they try to make you add the nine-dash line to the map? Nine-dash line? I don't know yeah. what that is. It's the, it's the line out in the ocean claiming like the South China Sea. Uh, so any 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 maps printed in China right now have to have the nine dash line on it. Like um, we got a little I like. I don't think that was specifically a thing. Okay. Now what we got from them was a copy of our map with a bunch of handwritten Chinese notes in Chinese, and there were so many of them that we basically went, "No, we're just not even going to deal with that." Ah, uh, um, yeah. So I never. I have a rough translation of all the changes that they wanted, but. I never went to the effort of trying to really, like, I wasn't going to do it. So I didn't try and figure out every little detail of exactly what they were looking for with every change. But maybe they did want that line as well. But I said, I'm going to do a whole video on what they wa- did want once the books are here. Yeah, that'd be interesting. I'd, I'd really like to see it. I try to keep up with, um, like, uh, China, what's going on in China. I've always, I've always thought it was really interesting. And a lot of our Kickstarter supporters from that book have expressed an interest in that. So I'll definitely be doing it. Cool. Yeah, that'll be, that'll be great. I hope so. Yeah. That's what's going on in my life. More travel, more filming guns, more books. It's good life, man. <laughs> good stuff. Can't complain. I, I always say like I could, there are things I could complain about, but no one would give me any sympathy. Rightly so. <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh, my back is sore from picking up so many cool guns today. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I can't go out there and tell anyone that. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Fortunately, I'm not trying to build a Polish Bertier collection these days. So. Oh, yeah. Nice. Well, um, cool. I think that I think that wraps it up. Uh, thanks awesome. so much for coming on the making time and coming on the podcast, Ian. I, I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Um, it was a lot of fun. Nice, yeah. Maybe if you get any more time in the future, um, you can come back on and do this. Do this again. We'll uh, be a little bit more open. Maybe we can talk about your next next book by then. Maybe you'll get some more out. Yeah, yeah. We'll talk about finished stuff next time, or or we'll talk about Siamese. Siamese. All right. I've got like two Siamese guns. <laughs> Same here. <laughs> you know, finish would be good. I think a lot of people are interested in in finish guns. That's true, uh, Danny. Those those. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean. Those Finnish collectors, man, like if you if you meet them and talk to them, they're very passionate. <laughs> That's true. Like oh, you yeah. can talk you can talk about infields to infield guys and they just kinda like they're good sports about it. But if you talk about Mosins to like you talk bad about Mosins to Finnish collectors, <laughs> oh <laughs> Yeah. Yes indeed. I'll just I'll the teaser I'll throw out there is I've already spent three days in the reserve collection underground bunker of the Finnish Army Museum photographing rare, interesting, and prototype finished small arms for this book. So it's going to be pretty awesome. Wow. That's cool. That's, yeah, that's fantastic. Oh, yeah. 
Nice. Awesome. Well, oh. thanks for thanks for joining and thanks to everybody for listening to the Millsurf World podcast and we'll see you later. Yeah, All right. Thanks. Take it easy, guys. Thanks.